Uh, I, I was meeting with uh, some Jehovah's Witness friends at the time. We would meet weekly for a Bible study for evangelism purposes. I thought I was converting them. They thought they were converting me. Everybody was happy. <laughs> and um, whenever it's, they were losing the debate, I could tell when they were getting uncomfortable, they might they would pull this uh, out of their back pocket. They'd say, well, Brexy, we don't know if you're right about the Trinity or the bodily resurrection of Jesus or whatever we were talking about, but they would say this. We do know that uh, we don't think we should convert to your kind of Christianity because you kind of Christians have a history of killing one another for the sake of your earthly kingdoms. Wow. Whew. And I would just be uh, stopped in my tracks there and say, I, I think you're right. But I don't know where to turn at this point. I, I, I'm ethically, when it comes to violence, on side with my Jehovah's Witness friends, but I, that doesn't bode well for me. If the only Christians or supposed Christians I can find who believe in the nonviolence of Jesus, I think are a cult. So <laughs> I was kind of stuck. I would resonate with them on this one point of ethics, but then disagree with them on all other points of theology. And, uh, and so eventually I heard about this group called Anabaptists. And I don't know if I had been asleep that week in seminary history, church history class or whatever, but I knew there were Mennonites and Amish, but uh, I, I wasn't I had only a vague awareness that they're there and didn't that didn't hold any attraction to me. So I Which just, are in the Anabaptist family, right? For those that might not be familiar with the tradition. Yeah, that's right. And so I, uh, but I just didn't realize that they have this rich history starting on the heels of the Protestant Reformation and that there was this branch of the Christian story that took a strong stand to say, we want to follow Jesus, including the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount, which is going to include nonviolent enemy love, and we will love our enemies to death like Jesus did. It's always okay to die for a cause. It's never okay to kill for a cause. And this branch of the Christian family tree just won my heart. I'm excited to talk to you in today's episode, Bruxy Cavey. Bruxy is the senior pastor at The Meeting House, which is a multi-site Anabaptist congregation in Ontario, Canada. Yes, you heard that right, a multi-site Anabaptist church where thousands of people uh, gather to worship each week. He's also been the author of several popular books, including the bestseller, The End of Religion, and Reunion. I was honored to find out that Bruxy actually listened to this podcast, and I reached out to him to see if he would come on and share a bit of his journey, his faith journey, and also to share a little bit about his Anabaptist tradition. I don't know about you, but growing up in my background, which was, again, an evangelical expression of or maybe I should better put it as a charismatic Pentecostal expression of evangelicalism. I knew very little about Anabaptism, even into my early adult years. So I thought many of you possibly might, like me, have very little familiarity with the Anabaptist tradition. Or maybe you do, maybe you have some familiarity. Part of my conversation with Bruxy is designed to tackle some of the introductory questions to what Anabaptist people are all about. And it's also to bring up some of the challenges or critiques or questions people have about this particular tradition in the Christian faith. Maybe it will help answer questions, or maybe for those of you that are even Anabaptist, it might even cause you to rethink some of the convictions that you have. I love these sorts of dialogues. I love the free exchange of ideas with people that are as charitable as Bruxy is in having nuanced dialogue. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Bruxy Cavey. 
It's my pleasure today to be joined by Bruxy, Bruxy Cavey. Bruxy is, uh, as I've mentioned already, he is a pastor at a, from my vantage point, a pretty unique setting. Um, not only is he a Canadian, which I do have an affinity for Canadians. My, I, I grew up in Detroit and uh, just on the other side of the river there was Ontario. My uncle actually had pastored a, planted a church in Nova Scotia, Canada, and so uh, we had very strong, fond feelings for our Canadian brethren. And I am now living in Minneapolis, which many people think is in Canada. So uh, <laughs> we have a strong connection to our, our Canadian our Canadian brothers. So thanks, Bruxy, for joining me today. Thanks, Paul. This is a privilege. And I've mentioned to you, I've listened to some episodes of what you're doing here, and I love I love your podcast. So it's I'm not I'm not just an interviewee. I'm also a regular listener, and uh, it's <laughs> it's lovely now to be a part of part of it. Thank you. Well, I also you know one other one other compliment your direction. I have to express appreciation. Those of you that are just listening, and maybe you haven't watched or you haven't aren't familiar with Bruxy's work. Bruxy has a finer head of hair than even I. I'm quite appreciative of the long locks and the beard. Um, more more power to those of us in ministry that are trying to be as much like Jesus as we can. <laughs> that's great. Well, coming from you, that's high praise. <laughs> I appreciate that. So, uh, Bruxy, you know, for maybe those of, uh, those of my listeners that First of all, aren't even maybe familiar with you and your church community. Could you tell us a bit about the unique church that you pastor, and maybe some of those things that uh, people from the outside, like myself, even when I first came across the meeting house, found pretty unique. Mm, yeah, sure. Uh, well, it's true. From the outside looking in, we might look like a large semi-mega church, multi-site campus, contemporary evangelical church, and uh, that's as far as that goes. Um, I'm sorry. I just had a bunch of notifications pop up, and I thought I'd shut them all down. And I don't know. Did you hear notifications? Pop up? Not no, not directly. No. Okay, maybe I only I'm the only one who heard it. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> all right. Maybe it's the voice of the Lord. Yes. All right. Uh, so yes, from the outside looking in, uh, you might not notice anything that that's that's that unusual. And maybe that's part of what's unusual is because from the inside out, we would see ourselves very differently. We're first of all more of a home church network. We have over 170 different house churches that are meeting house house churches uh, connected with one of our Sunday sites. But <clears throat> we see that as where. Um, the one another's of the New Testament that kind of give us an opportunity to be involved in each other's lives really take place. Uh, we we borrow a line from uh, Larry Crabb who said, uh, real church happens when the chairs are turned to face one another. And so we see our more than just a s optional small group program on the side. We see home church as kind of the heart and lungs of the meeting house. And then we have an optional Sunday morning church service program on the side. And uh, not only that, but we are an Anabaptist church, and that's uh, that's something that would be more unusual to see in a large church format, and uh, and so that's that's something that puts us in a in a strange category. Yeah. So, tell us a little bit about how before you, um, you know, maybe we. I, I really one of the primary purposes of having this discussion is just to help people maybe ha come to a better understanding of the Anabaptist tradition. Um, because I know from my own journey as someone that grew up in a charismatic evangelical tradition, I had no idea what Anabaptists were until probably my early 20s. So I want to get to that. But first, I, I would love to hear a little bit more about your own journey. Did you grow up as an Anabaptist? 
what was maybe some of the more formational moments in your life that brought you to this point of being a pastor and in in this particular stream? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in an evangelical denomination, uh, both in charismatic and non-charismatic versions of uh, evangelicalism. I'm really grateful for my background. Uh, gave me a great, solid uh, commitment to Scripture, and my my Pentecostal upbringing really uh, is something I'm so grateful for, and gave me a real sense of being open and and awake and alive to God's presence. That He's really real. We're not just studying a 2,000 year old event. We're studying the event that is happening in our lives right now. And so I was really appreciative for my Pentecostal upbringing. At the same time, I had a feeling that I couldn't quite fit in, didn't know what that was, and I assumed that's probably just every Christian's experience the side of heaven. I won't have that feeling of fully fitting in until I die, and that's okay. Um, that that was my earlier years, and then when I went to seminary, I became a Calvinist. I, uh, I really had a lot of questions in my head that my Pentecostal background couldn't answer for me, and it was really a race for my brain. Whoever got there quicker with clear answers won my loyalty. And <laughs> at seminary, I had a reformed uh, systematic theology professor, and I loved, I immediately just fell in love with systematic theology. And from a reformed perspective, the clear, almost machine, meticulous-like way that thoughts could fit together and answer questions that I wasn't finding answers elsewhere. Um, and I thought Calvin is brilliant, you know, 26 years old writing this stuff and, uh, and just that such, such a clear headed person. Um, so I became, uh, Calvinist rather quickly and, and really appreciated the answers that this framework gave. And so when I graduated from seminary, I became a Baptist pastor and, uh, and with authenticity, um, was, uh, I think, a someone who really appreciated the Baptist of denomination and giving me a real appreciation for scripture and, would have preached uh, a theology more in line with the Reformation. and um, uh, But after a few years of being a Baptist pastor, there started to become some some chinks in the armor, some some questions again started to rise up. And part of that was due to the fact that I, I learned more about the life of Calvin and the life of Luther and realized that, well, my appreciation level for the Reformers continued to rise at the same time I was a bit stunned by what I hadn't paid attention to, I guess, before, and that is their uh, willingness to use violence to either defend the gospel or advance the kingdom of Christ. And I thought that's a pretty low-hanging fruit as far as understanding the teaching of Jesus. And it's one of those non-confusing parts about the Bible that Jesus really did champion nonviolent enemy love. And I thought if, if some of my theological heroes are missing that, maybe I have to have to just be a bit more discerning and questioning as I think about some of the other things that they taught. Uh, I, I was meeting with uh, some Jehovah's Witness friends at the time. We would meet weekly for a Bible study for evangelism purposes. I thought I was converting them. They thought they were converting me. Everybody was happy. <laughs> and um, whenever it's, they were losing the debate, I could tell when they were getting uncomfortable, they might they would pull this uh, out of their back pocket. They'd say, well, Brexy, we don't know if you're right about the Trinity or the bodily resurrection of Jesus or whatever we were talking about, but they would say this. We do know that uh, we don't think we should convert to your kind of Christianity because you kind of Christians have a history of killing one another for the sake of your earthly kingdoms. Wow. Whew. And I would just be uh, stopped in my tracks there and say, I, I think you're right. But I don't know where to turn at this point. I, I, I'm ethically, when it comes to violence, on side with my Jehovah's Witness friends, but I, 
that doesn't bode well for me. If the only Christians are supposed Christians I can find who believe in the nonviolence of Jesus, I think are a cult. So <laughs> I was kind of stuck. I would resonate with them on this one point of ethics, but then disagree with them on all other points of theology. And uh, and so eventually I heard about this group called Anabaptists. And I don't know if I had been asleep that week in seminary history, church history class or whatever, but I knew there were like Mennonites and Amish, but uh, I, I wasn't had only a vague awareness that they're there and didn't that didn't hold any attraction to me. So I, Which are in the Anabaptist family, right? For those that might not be familiar with the tradition. Yeah, that's right. And so I, uh, but I just didn't realize that they have this rich history starting on the heels of the Protestant Reformation, and that there was this branch of the Christian story that took a strong stand to say, we want to follow Jesus, including the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount, which is going to include nonviolent enemy love, and we will love our enemies to death like Jesus did. It's always okay to die for a cause. It's never okay to kill for a cause. And this branch of the Christian family tree just won my heart. And um, eventually an Anabaptist church asked me to come and pastor. That's where I am now, the meeting house. And um, and so I now feel like, hey, I think I found uh, the people of my tribe. It feels like long-lost family. I feel like I really belong here. I think it's interesting that you found there to be a disconnect between the the the, the stated theology of people like Luther and Calvin and what you felt was the real lived theology and it not matching the example that you read in the Gospels or perhaps even in your seminary training in early church history. Um, and that was, that was disconcerting. I, 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 I think that's actually in many ways, a, a point of encouragement to people as they evaluate the, the theology that they will, um, absorb, right. Is to actually see whether or not this is making manifest in someone's life, the fruits of the spirit, right. I mean, that was the ultimate thing that Jesus pointed to, right. John the Baptist, you know, the bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So I do think that's a good thing to do. While simultaneously, there's probably the possibility of error on the other side, right? Of of completely discounting uh, someone's ideas because perhaps maybe they have a particular area of their life where they are not bearing fruit. You know, um, I think of even someone like Martin Luther King Jr., who hmm. um, is probably fairly well known, or at least among historians, for having many infidelities and affairs, but uh, yet does that call into question everything that he held to? Uh, we could probably say the same for guys like Luther mm-hmm. and Calvin, right? Absolutely, and that's why I would never uh, want to encourage someone to give up a perspective, a faith, or a theology, or turn against it because of the imperfections of those who espouse it. For me, it was really just a matter of saying, I'd gotten to the point where reformed theology was unquestionable to me. It was, it was, uh, I had asked all my questions. Now it's just a matter of embrace it and that's it. And when I learned about some of the blind spots of the magisterial reformers, what that did was just give me permission to ask questions again and say, maybe if they were wrong about this, there could be other things they were wrong about. Let's begin to investigate again. And so it's that investigation, I think, that eventually led me out of a reformed perspective, again, with much appreciation. I didn't shake the dust off my feet and say, I'm done with you reformers, but said, just, you know, thank you for what I have learned here. But I realized that I'm being drawn into a different way of thinking and a different way of, of living. Yeah, and I want to be clear for those that are listening, and you know, even in our own home church, there are many people 
that uh, are in a more reformed tradition. Uh, later this week, I'll be sitting down with a, another pastor who comes from the Do- Dutch reformed tradition. And there's so many things that we can learn about yeah. uh, the, the, the Jesus way. We can learn about, I, I so appreciate it, and I've shared this multiple times before, coming from that charismatic background, which uh, I had frequently heard things like seminaries or cemeteries, I am so appreciative of later in life when I became uh, partners in ministry with those who came from that Reformed perspective who showed me I had no idea how to read the Bible. And I was very, uh, had a very anti the life of the mind posture of my heart. So I'm really thankful for that. You said, you know, this, this Anabaptist, particular Anabaptist expression emerged during the Reformation. Oftentimes, it's called the Radical Reformation. Mm -hmm. And historically, Anabaptists were were viciously persecuted during the Reformation. And I remember uh, one of my favorite church historians, Justo Gonzalez, in his two-volume series, that second volume of church history, uh, deals more with the Reformation history. And he speculates that there were more Anabaptists killed for their faith uh, during the Reformation than early Christians were in the first three centuries of living under the Roman Empire. Mm. What were some of the reasons for that? What are what are some of the things that made Anabaptism unique? And why did people feel the need to persecute, to drown? I mean, that was, uh, they had called it the third baptism, right, in some cases. Uh, can you give us a little bit of the history of the Anabaptist stream? Sure. Okay. The Protestant Reformation that happens in the early 1500s and on the heels of the Protestant Reformation is this thing, as you called it, called the Radical Reformation. And they were really, in many instances, they were the students of the Protestant reformers. So where Protestant reformers had created places of safety, there had been national conversions. So now you were able to set up things like seminaries and um, protected churches and institutions. Um, because they partnered with the state and were able to use violence to defend borders and create places of safety. And in a fallen world, that's what states do. You have to, you need either violence or the threat of violence to establish nations, to protect nations, etc. And so earthly kingdoms do use violence. And as the church benefited from that, they could have the safety as, as first they were persecuted Protestant reformers, and then they created their places of safety. But then they turned around and became the persecutors. And it was really the students of the Protestant reformers, really the 20-something young adults who uh, were were taught to fall in love with the scriptures and were able to say to their teachers, thank you, you've given us the Bible, you put the Bible in our hands and helped us fall in love with the scriptures. And as we read the scriptures, we are falling in love with Jesus at the center of the scriptures. And we wanna challenge you as our professors, as the reformers, as the leaders of this movement that you have not gone far enough. And so they were known as the radical reformers, pushing the Protestant reformers into the next level of their reformation, which is not just about scripture then, it's about keeping Jesus at the center of scripture. Because if they could see a real live example of what it looks like to say, we will let the Bible lead us, we will follow the Bible. And it led to many good things, but it also left the movement just as violent as their Catholic counterparts. Catholics we could blame them for listening to the Pope when it came time to go to war. Protestants said, we just follow scripture, but then they were just as violent, fought just as many wars, killed the Catholics as the Catholics killed the Protestants, then both of them together killed the Anabaptists. And and so Anabaptists said, this is, this is a, 
there's something missing here. It's not just a matter of putting the Bible in the center of our faith. It's putting Jesus in the center of the Bible, which is in the center of our faith, and making sure that all roads lead to Jesus. And then when we do that, we find that Jesus helps us interpret even the violent passages in the Bible, and we follow his love ethic as completely new covenant people. So Anabaptists uh, became pacifists, but it wasn't an arbitrary value of of peace or nonviolence, it was the absolute theological repositioning of Jesus at the center, saying, no, we're not just people of the book who follow a Bible. We're not just people of the book, we're people of the person, uh, Jesus, and we read the Bible so we can follow Jesus. We don't just follow the Bible. We read the Bible, study the Bible, learn the Bible, memorize the Bible, but so that we can follow Jesus. And that was more than just semantics. It was more than just phraseology. It led to very different places. So Anabaptists believed in this radical idea, which is now commonplace for us, which is the separation of church and state, that the church should not be able to partner with the power of the state in order to advance its kingdom, um, and, uh, and that the two should be different. Well, now we all kind of wrap our heads and hearts around that and say, yeah, separation of church and state makes sense. But that was a radical idea at the time when the infant baptizing ceremony of a child was the same ceremony as when they became a member of the state. They were a citizen of the state and a member of the church through the same ceremony. So to say no, uh, you shouldn't be automatically Lutheran because you're born in Germany and automatically Catholic because you're born in France and automatically uh, Anglican born in England, etc. Faith should be a personal choice. And so, yes, parents should raise their kids as well as they can, but in the end, the child needs to make a choice, and baptism should be aligned with that choice of faith, that free will choice to follow Jesus. That's what we see baptism as symbolizing, the believer's uh, response and faith to Christ, not the parent's faith, which infant baptism displays. And so uh, so they, their theology on baptism itself shifted, but it wasn't just, again, an arbitrary baptism theology. It was the theology of Jesus at the center calling us to respond in faith, and then baptism being the sign that Faith should be a personal choice. So you've highlighted some of the things that would maybe make it unique, uh, the Anabaptist emphasis unique from some of the other Reformed traditions, things like an emphasis on nonviolence, things like making sure that the church is not wedded in some unholy alliance to the state. Because the state, I mean, it seems like it would logically follow, because the state exists to bear the sword, so I suppose if Christians are uh, not called to bear the sword, then they should also not wed themselves to the state. And then you also mentioned this distinctive of, of baptism, you know, what's maybe commonly called today as believer's baptism. So far, though, what, what about those was so um, provoking uh, that it would push people to want to kill someone for expressing that, that vision? Well, part it may be very similar to what was happening with Jesus in the first century, in that Jesus wasn't only personal, personally uh, provocative to the religious leaders, but if his movement caught on, uh, they saw the religious leaders saw Jesus as uh, as perhaps spreading a kind of antinomianism, uh, a disrespect for the law that he was taking liberties and how he would interpret that for them. If his movement caught on, that could be bad for Israel as a nation. God might not bless them because, uh, from their point of view, whenever God allowed a foreign nation to invade, that was often punishment because they had not been following the law properly. They had not been taking his word, his teaching seriously enough. And if Jesus's movement was seen as something that 
encouraged people to reinterpret the law and apply it differently in a way that the Pharisees thought was wrong, they would have at that time said, we are currently under God's uh, wrath because we have not been taking the law seriously enough. That's why Rome is here. The Pharisees, in trying to bring people back to the scriptures and saying, let's follow the Torah, were trying to bring about a holiness revival that would then liberate Israel from Roman oppression and get God's blessing again. And Jesus would be working against that. That would make him public enemy number one. And I think something similar, uh, though different, but similar was happening with the Anabaptists in that if the Anabaptist movement caught on, uh, it wasn't just that their theology individually was was offensive, but that if that movement caught on, it would begin to change the safety and security of Protestant society. Part of what Anabaptists taught was radical nonviolence and not going to war, not signing up for the army. There were, I mean, they had wars to fight against the Catholics. They had they had wars to fight against the Moors or against the Muslims, who were an invading army at that time in different in different areas and. And so to have a movement growing that was affecting their um, military base, in a sense, uh, by calling people who love Jesus to swear off of violence and to put down the sword was actually a societal threat if that were to grow to any large proportion. So I could see there would be both religious and political reasons why Anabaptism would have been seen as a threat at that time. Well, just to put it in maybe some helpful reframing, I, I would imagine similar sentiments would happen, especially here in the United States. You Canadian brethren are, are not so militaristic, um, but here in the United States, we've certainly seen controversy uh, surrounding even people's physical postures of, we might say, worship uh, towards something like a flag when an anthem is happening at a football game. Um, you know, I, I, I know people that uh, hold particular convictions, as I would confess I do myself, about things like saying the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, and it does seem similar in some regard to if one were to go and say, hey, these are things I'm choosing not to give my allegiance to or participate in, there would be questions of one's patriotism, right? Especially here in the United States. I don't know if you guys experienced that in the same way in Canada, but... Sure, sure. Canada's an interesting culture. We're kind of somewhere between American culture and British culture. We're, we're somewhere in the same, but there's a lot of similarities. And uh, I, yeah, and I can appreciate that. We Anabaptists really saw the gospel of the kingdom as Jesus proclaimed this gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven here on earth is something that gets lived out in our relationships and that we, churches, become outposts of of heaven and that we should be showing the world whatever earthly kingdom we're in the middle of, we should be showing them a different kingdom, a taste of a different way of living. And that the New Testament teaching of us being ambassadors on behalf of the kingdom of Christ to our earthly kingdom, we took that very seriously, not just as an interesting metaphor used once or twice, but to say, no, we're not citizens of whatever nation we find ourselves in. We are ambassadors to this kingdom, not citizens of this kingdom. And our primary allegiance then is to Christ. And an ambassador has to know the policies of the kingdom they represent really well. They have to know the policies of their king well and live those out. And then they also have to know the culture that they're sent to as a minister or an ambassador to that kingdom. But they know that they know that culture as the target culture to which they're going to convey the policies of their king. They're not trying to pledge allegiance to that earthly culture, that new culture. And so Anabaptists really took it seriously that we are not citizens of whatever country we find ourselves in. We're citizens of heaven and we are ambassadors here and now. And that changes everything in our relationship to any one particular country. 
I know people uh, and even myself have questions about how that actually gets lived out in day-to-day -day life, but I want to come back to that question because I also want to highlight you know, one of the distinctives or maybe the unique contributions that maybe is often overlooked in the Anabaptist dream. It seems as if long before we were dealing with uh, or learning from maybe some postmodern hermeneutic theories about you know, reader-centered hermeneutic versus text-centered hermeneutic versus author-centered hermeneutic. The Anabaptists seem to be calling into question people's hermeneutic that they approach the scriptures with, right? And I guess what I hear you saying is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed as if the Anabaptist tradition very early on was saying, Sola Scripture is great, but if it's producing in people's lives something that doesn't look like Jesus, that's a problem. So maybe now we should try to have a gospel-centered hermeneutic control or a Jesus-centered hermeneutic control. I, I do think everybody has this particular hermeneutic control, this, this lens that they engage the Scriptures with. Um, and it seems like the Anabaptists were saying, well, let's be honest perhaps about seeing what is controlling our reading of scripture, if it's producing these things in, in your life. So when you say a Jesus-centered or, you know, I hear someone like like Greg Boyd here in the Twin Cities, who I know you're friends with, talk about, you know, a Jesus-centered hermeneutic or a cruciform hermeneutic. Um, why do you, why would you make the choice to start there? What does that look like when you say a Jesus-centered hermeneutic? Because are we saying, you know, a particular are we just saying just we're going to start with the Gospels? Or oftentimes in Greg's case, it seems like he's starting with the cross. Um, you know, why start there instead of saying perhaps maybe a, well, I'm going to start in more of a chronological hermeneutic and I see the God of the Old Testament act this way, so I will need to make, um, you know, Jesus's ethical teaching fit within that. I think this is a really long question, but I think of one of the practicalities of this is even the Anabaptist position on violence, uh, many people would go and say, well, we see the people of God in the Old Testament act in violent ways. So why isn't that justified? And it really brings up a question of what's going to be our hermeneutic control. Can you speak to a little bit of that very long loaded question? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, it's a great question and you're packing a lot in there. The earliest creed statement of faith of the church was the three words, Jesus is Lord. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, 9, that if we confess, this is our confession, this is our creed, those three beautiful words, uh, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead. So he is Lord, not just was Lord, but is Lord. He's alive now. Then we're saved. We often tell people the meeting house, don't invite Jesus into your heart to be your own personal Savior. Commit to him as Lord, and you get him as Savior as part of the package. And so this uh, this commitment to Christ as Lord, we think, is the the, the central theme of what it means to be a Christian, literally a Christian, a Christ follower, a little Christ, someone who wants to be like Christ. Uh, uh, so we are, uh, we're not just people of the book. We are people of Jesus, and he is everything to us. In fact, he, the only reason that we know the book, the story of Israel, is because we've been grafted into that story by Jesus. He is our starting point, even experientially. We start with Jesus, then we work backwards and say, what's the story of Israel, and how can I learn from that and make that my story as well, so, spiritually? But I've been adopted in through Christ. As the Apostle Paul preaches to pagans in, in Acts chapter 17, he starts with their own story, but then he leads them to Jesus. And after they accept Jesus, for those who do, they'll be able to learn the story of Israel. They'll be able to learn the rest 
rest of the story of Scripture. But Jesus, I, I only know anything about the Old Testament because Jesus has welcomed me into that story. So he is my everything. And then I, I radiate out from there to understand the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of the New Testament. I did hear a, a Reformed pastor who, I, I won't use his name, he'd be someone many people would know. He was doing a series, I was listening to him on the radio, and um doing a series on the Sermon on the Mount. He was talking about Jesus's uh, enemy love and nonviolence. And I thought this would be really interesting as an Anabaptist for me to, and by the way, I listen regularly to pastors who are from different traditions and professors and authors from different traditions. I think it's good to cross-pollinate and get out of our theological ghettos. And I know that you appreciate that, Paul, and I appreciate that about you appreciating that. And <laughs> and so I was listening to this Reformed pastor, thought this will be interesting. How does he handle Kind of, I what I would see is a radical swearing off of all violence that we see in the in the Sermon on the Mount, and he said it's true. Jesus teaches us to love our enemies, to lay down our lives, to turn the other cheek, to we'll go the second mile. This is radical nonviolence, and I thought, wow, this is amazing to hear from a Reformed pastor's teaching. Uh, but he didn't stop there. He then said, but remember, folks. Moses teaches us that there's going to be times for violence. And so we have to balance this Sermon on the Mount teaching out and understand that according to the Old Testament, there is a time for war. David also teaches us this. And so and I realized his approach in being quote unquote biblical is to start with Jesus, but then balance Jesus out with Moses and balance Jesus out with David. And this is where an Anabaptist would say, no, no, stamped it, no, erase a thousand times, no, we don't balance Jesus out. We don't follow Jesus a little bit and also follow Moses or follow David. We, we are Christ followers 100%. And then we learn from the story of Moses, the story of David, but all of that now is set up so that we'll understand Jesus better. Similar to the charismatic and Pentecostal tradition, I, I spent most most of my life in, which it really, that tradition, uh, and you shared already that it was part of your own journey too, uh, there was a strong emphasis on a return to the practices and the beliefs of the early church, right? That uh, things like spirit baptism, the empowerment of spiritual gifts, of power gifts, of living as Jesus in the world, greater th some of you will do greater things than me. We took that very, very seriously. I hear many Anabaptists talk about the difference between the early church and what we could say are essentially the post-Constantinian church. You know, Constantine, uh, the Edict Milan, fourth century, uh, you know, stopped the persecution of the, the great persecution of Diocletian. He officially, though it doesn't become the official uh, religion of the empire by his um, acceptance or I guess, public proclamation that he was now a Christian forever changed the relationship of the Christian community to the state. And I, I hear Anabaptists talk about the pre-Constantinian days, the good old days, right? Um, and even though Anabaptism emerged during the Protestant Reformation, do you feel as if you are possibly calling people to a more ancient faith? Uh, yes, I do believe there is something more primitive in uh, kind of root Anabaptism, that, they, that the early Anabaptist movement caught something of the early days of the Christian movement that had just been forgotten in our collective memory since Constantine. And I understand how that would happen, as you pointed out, what a miracle it must have seemed like through the great plot twist in religious history, and I can't think of any greater, for the, 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 the Caesar, for the leader of the 
uh, of the society that not only killed Christ, but then has been killing Christ's followers for centuries, to then himself convert and bow at the feet of Jesus and say, I now am a Christian. Uh, this, this has got to seem as though the kingdom of heaven come to earth. It must seem, this is the great unexpected plot twist that that I can understand why Christians at that time would say, this is a miracle, this is a gift from God, this is this is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is. Well, that was, that was Eusebius's position, the ancient church historian and church father. He saw it as, boy, this is the kingdom come. Yes, and how could any of us resist the miraculous sway of that, the conversion of the Roman emperor? And so... I can see why that happened, and we were lulled into then a fusion of church and state. We were embraced by the state. We, you know, happening in stages, but first to have the persecution stop, and us to be given legitimacy, and then eventually for it to become the state religion, just must seem like yes, finally Jesus is setting up shop here on earth. This is it, and we partnered with the state. I think with a with a good conscience at first, thinking we are following the miraculous breadcrumbs that Jesus is giving us and trying to follow Jesus well, and that means that this is his state now. Rome, Rome is now the kingdom of Christ come to earth, and now let's see that kingdom spread around the world. I get that. I understand it. But at some point then, we have to wake up and say, no, we have been lulled into uh, the use of power to advance the kingdom of Christ, the use of the sword. We have fused the church and the state together in such a tight relationship uh, that, uh, and the end, the end result has been increased violence in the name of Jesus, which has put the church in a very unhealthy place. So um, I understand we made a mistake and, and when we realize we've done something wrong, the appropriate response is repentance and to say, no, we reject that. We're not going to cast blame on anyone else, but we are going to say for our generation, we repent of that. That's not the right way to think. Hmm. So practically, what, what does that look like in the life of an Anabaptist uh, today living in Canada or the United States to um, not wed yourself as a church community to the state, are there some particular, you know, uh, political instructions or you might say, political, I, I don't mean partisan, obviously, partisan politics as, again, Americans seem to only be able to think in those terms. But are there certain instructions that as a community, you guys say, we, we're going to refrain from these things? You've already talked about violence. Are there other, other practical uh, differences between how an average Canadian or American um, Anabaptists might practice their faith. Yeah, sure. So I mentioned that we see our primary identity as being ambassadors to this country rather than citizens of this country. And then having said that, we know that from an earthly point of view, we find ourselves as citizens inside an earthly kingdom. And that raises the paradox of to what extent are we purists and say, no, I'm not a citizen here. You know, citizens pay taxes. I don't pay taxes. And citizens uh, reap the benefits of paying those taxes. I don't want any of those benefits. And how do we work that out? How, to what extent are we purists? And I, that would have been an issue of concern even for the early church. So what I love is that both Jesus and Paul give us a clear demarcation in our relationship with the society in which we find ourselves. And that is pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. And to that extent, you are participating as a as a submitted citizen within that society. Uh, but when you come to a point where there is a clear ethical uh, a parting of the ways between the way of Christ and the way of society, then always choose the way of Christ. So if you read Romans 13, as you mentioned earlier, 
we realize that that comes on the heels of Romans 12. It's really a one whole conversation. Sometimes our um, more reformed-leaning Christian friends will jump to Romans 13 and say, "Hey, but the church, uh, uh, the state bears the sword," and and uh, and a Baptist would agree, absolutely. But don't jump into the middle of the conversation. Back up a few verses, and you notice that Paul is having a conversation on a more holistic level of the relationship between the church and the state. And by church, we don't mean institution. We mean the people of God. Uh, when we think of the church as an institution and the state as a different institution, we can see myself not as the church, but as an individual Christian who has dual allegiance. And sometimes I put on my church cap. Sometimes I put on my state cap. Sometimes I'm a pacifist in the church, but then when I work for the state, I can be a just war Christian. And I The two kingdoms approach, right? Yes, right. And I can yeah. have dual citizenship and dual ethical standards, depending on what stream I'm moving in at the time. But uh, when G when Paul talks about the church, he's not talking about an institution over against the state. He's talking about the people of God. And he says that the church or the people of God should be nonviolent. This is a an absolute, uh, we are to pour coals of love on our enemy's head, but we are to walk in the way of peace. And, and really, he beautifully, in the end of Romans 12, he reiterates um, the theme of some of the Sermon on the Mount, especially in Matthew chapter 5, but in his own words. And you can see his alignment with Jesus so beautifully, but not just parroting Jesus, but working it out in his own words. And then it raises the question, well, if I'm not going to be uh, violent in any way, if I'm going to love my enemies... What, uh, what, how, when is God ever going to bring justice? Because I don't get to be the agent of justice. I don't get to be an agent of punishment. I would like to be. I'd like to be someone who represents the justice of God to this world. And he says, don't. You represent the mercy of God to this world, the grace of God to this world. That's the role of the church. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's not yours, church. It's not yours. And that raises the question, well, then how is God ever going to bring about justice in this life? Is he or is he just going to wait until we all die? And that then brings up the topic of Romans 13. Paul is saying, don't worry, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And how is God going to do it? He will work it out through the state and he will often use the state to bring about his wrath. And the state bears the sword on behalf of God. And so submit to the state and appreciate that's how God's going to work it out. But he's already made it clear you're not to have any part in that. Don't, that's God working out his wrath through the state. Have no part in it. Now, that creates the tension of, well, then where do I draw the line in supporting and submitting to the state? I won't pick up the sword along with the state, but um, every time I pay my taxes, I'm supporting the sword. So, And that's why he works up to verse 6 of Romans 13. And in verse 6, he settles it and says, that's where you draw the line. Pay your taxes. And that's it. So I love the practicality of how he gets there. When he finally just says, hey, pay your taxes, that's just not one more random command about submission of the state. That's answering the theological conundrum of uh, you know, everything I do may end up supporting the state and the sword, but I'm not supposed to bear the sword. So where do I draw the line? And he answers that with pay your taxes. So I appreciate the practical nature of that. One of the critiques of the Anabaptist tradition is that it tends to adopt, and I know Anabaptists would dispute this term, uh, what H.R. Niebuhr called a Christ-against-culture attitude. And I know, again, Anabaptists wouldn't maybe dispute that, that very framework. People like Yoder, for example, thought it was a pejorative oversimplification. But shouldn't we be concerned about what happens in culture, politics, and even local civil governments if Christians did not participate in those structures? What would happen if all Christians left vocations in police work or the military to practice the Anabaptist commitment to total nonviolence? 
doesn't that actually increase the likelihood of injustice in the here and now? Mm, yeah, that's a wonderful question. And there's a couple of directions that uh, we would be possible to go. Uh, first of all, culture is certainly more than policing and soldiering. So Anabaptists, I think, uh, are, certainly there's a spectrum of opting out of culture in a variety of ways. And we understand our more um, conservative old order, Mennonite and Amish brothers and sisters who would would uh, opt out of culture completely. Uh, but uh, the rest of us would see culture as there to be engaged with, to be both intellectually and artistically engaged with in a variety of ways. Um, so we have no hesitation to be culture influencers and to be both learning from and also hoping to influence culture in a variety of ways. It's the power structures particularly that become a challenge for Anabaptists because Jesus doesn't give clear teaching in the Sermon on the Mount or anywhere on how to steward power really well. He teaches us how to lay power down. And so for a Christian in a position of actual physical power, whether that's a police officer or a soldier, or it is a president of a country, the prime minister of a country, someone who oversees the use of military force and power, we can't turn to direct Jesus principles to teach us how to do that because Jesus would teach, lay down your sword, pick up your cross, die, you know, be willing to die. And there's a conflict here because in a fallen world, uh, a nation cannot be pacifist and survive a few generations. If America, you know, the president of the United States said, I'm a Christian, therefore I follow the way of Jesus, therefore I believe that I should renounce all violence, lay down the sword, and we're disbanding our armies because America's a Christian nation. I don't see that happening anytime no. soon, Bruxy. I hate to break it to you. <laughs> exactly. So you can't actually apply the teachings of Jesus to your office of a person who presides over power because Jesus says, lay down the power and be willing to die. And so at some point, someone's Christian faith is something that it doesn't serve them well when they get into a position of power. And, and we have no record in history, really, of Christians being better and more loving leaders than non-Christians. And we think, oh, no, what if uh, we didn't have Christians in politics? What if we didn't have, which seems to me a bit insulting to our non-Christian friends, as though they are just wild uh, warmongers who have no, no ethics and don't care for their kids and care about peace on the planet that everyone's made in the image of God and and has the law of God written on their hearts. We don't have record in history of Christians actually doing a better job when they get into power bringing about peace. Some of the worst and most violent leaders in positions of authority in Western history have been Christians. So I don't think that, there, that we need to sound the alarm bells when Christians actually begin to follow the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of Paul in Romans 12 and 13, and say, we will trust God to work through the state, but that's not our calling. Uh, we will work with God through the church. If that violence, though, is a necessary reality in this fallen world uh, until the, the, the full realization of Christ's kingdom has come, until we reach the eschaton, does practicing a complete commitment to nonviolence in a violent world while still paying your taxes doesn't that simply mean that you're just outsourcing your violence to someone else? If that is a present reality here and now, aren't I just paying someone else to carry the gun and protect me or to prevent, you know, um, the invasion of warmongers or, you know, things like that? Are you just outsourcing 
yes, your violence to yes. someone else. Okay. Yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> and, and that is, I think, clearly what Scripture teaches. We're ultimately outsourcing violence, retribution, punishment, wrath to someone else, and that person is God. And we're saying, God, you're not calling the church to partner with you on this one. Uh, you're calling us to partner with you and your mercy and your grace and to follow the way of Jesus. We do know that you are going to work justice, wrath, retribution through this world, and you are going to do that through the state, but you have called the church to a different path. Uh, so we will pay our taxes, and we will outsource that. That's true. That's a great word. We'll outsource that to you, God, to do however you want. And he says, I'll do that through the state. Um, so I don't try and take that back. You know, we're we're called to be Christ-like or God-like in, in many ways, but not in the way of judgment. We're called to be like Christ in how we love our enemies, but not in how we judge our enemies. I mean, part of the nonviolent commitment of Anabaptists is not that it doesn't matter what you do. Everyone's equal. Just love your enemies because, you know, maybe they've had a bad day. We believe in justice. We just believe that God is the one who's in charge of bringing that about. Therefore, we'll follow the way of mercy and enemy love, trusting that God will eventually be the judge. I know you're saying you're entrusting it to God, but it is going through human mediators. And it would seem as if one one critique I heard was um, someone expressing their concern that when Anabaptists in predominantly Christianized or in Christendom nations are uh, refusing to participate, let's say, in military service or police, uh, to be in a police force, but those things are still necessary for their protection, that it's a little bit like an Amish person taking an Uber or a taxi to get into town. It feels as if, well, I'm not going to do it, but I realize this thing has to happen, so I'll just let someone else do it. Um, doesn't it seem as if that is, uh, I don't want to say a dereliction of duty, but it, it seems as if it could be disingenuous to say that it is, I'm entrusting to God, but wink, wink, I know that I'm going to need that police officer to show up if someone's trying to break into my home. Yeah, no, I understand that from a secular point of view, it could look that way. But I would hope that those of us who are trying to see behind the veil, behind the curtain, would understand Paul's teaching that God is actually using that police officer and that army in his bigger plan of how to bring about justice, wrath, retribution, and that we are not to fight him on that, but we're also not to participate in that process. Uh, we are to be like Jesus as love, as lovers of enemies, but we're not to try and be like Jesus by sitting in the seat of judgment of others. That's that's not our call. And if God chooses to work through the state, as he often does and says he does in Romans 13, then we we submit to that. We bless him in that. I understand from a secular point of view, Christian pacifism must seem like hypocrisy. Uh, there's much about Christianity that is going to be silliness, foolishness uh, to the Greeks, you might say. It's going to appear um, unacceptable. But uh, I would hope that that would be limited to a secular point of view. And from a Christian point of view, we would understand that there's larger forces at play here that we want to submit to. hope you don't mind me pushing a little bit more on this point, because I think many people that uh, become familiar with the Anabaptist tradition, there's so many things that they like about it. They, they, they appreciate the the very sincere call to take the Sermon on the Mount seriously. They appreciate the gospel-centered, as in you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus-centered approach to reading the scriptures. Um, but they are trying to figure out, I don't know how this actually works in day-to-day -day life. And so I bring these questions up, not, not 
not to just engage in argument, but because I know people are genuinely wrestling with this question. I even think of, you know, the Anabaptist theologian Richard B. Hayes said in his book, The, the Moral Vision of the New Testament, he said, and this is a quote, uh, if the Sermon on the Mount was addressed to a marginal community outside the circle of power, its teachings cannot be directly applied in a context where Christians hold positions of power and influence, or where they constitute the majority in a democratic political order. Imagine, I guess, uh, sometimes I wonder as I read Romans 13, if I'm going to be honest, I just kind of try to remove some of my own biases and I try to read that as an outsider. I look at that and I go, well, that's a great idea, Paul, right now, but you're, aren't you kind of hoping that this thing spreads, you know, and that more people become followers of Jesus? And what happens when you get to a precipice? We're in a, a nation state. The majority of people, wouldn't the goal be eventually, well, we want 100% of people to follow this Jesus way. And yet simultaneously, um, I, how, how, does, how do these functions, which we are also confessing simultaneously, are necessary for the defense of innocent people? Is it functionally impossible to directly apply the teaching of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount to Christians in places like Canada and the United States? Yeah, interestingly, I would agree with Hayes completely in that and say, yes, it's impossible. You can't be in a position of power and try and apply the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount to that position of power. You cannot steward military violence. You cannot steward the sword, a la Romans 13, and say, now, Jesus, teach me how to do this well, a la Romans 12 or Matthew chapter 5 or Luke chapter 6. You can't do it because Jesus says, lay down the sword. Uh, he says, that's not your role. So I would agree that someone who's in a position of power saying, I'm, uh, that is militaristic power saying, I'm looking to Jesus to guide me in this, is in a place where, and I think this may be why many Christian leaders throughout history have been the worst at stewarding violence, because they can't look to Jesus. The center of their faith fails them here, because Jesus has already told them not to pick up the sword. So where do they look to? They look to King David. They look to Moses. They look to the Old Testament paradigms. They create just war theories that is that, that tries to knit together the best of really secular understanding. The Bible doesn't give us an example of even just war in the Old Testament. We have holy war, not just war. So you have the equivalent of a secular form of leadership in the name of Jesus, rather than actually using the ethics of Jesus to try and lead. And so I would say to a brother or sister in that position, uh, repent and resign. Hmm. Hypothetically, we'll throw out a couple scenarios and how you would like pastorally encourage someone or large groups of Christians pastorally. We'll take something, um, you know, it seems like this is always the example that comes up in questions about ethics. But if we were to go back to the late 1930s and Nazism is on the rise, obviously one of the problems there is that it's on the rise because it had the blessing of the institutionalized church in Germany in large part, though you had voices of dissenters. You also had the problem that World War II was a bunch of largely Christian nations fighting against each other. So I know there can be prophetic Anabaptist critiques on that level, but let's say you've already gotten to that point. You're living in the United States or Canada, and you've become aware of something as atrocious as the Holocaust. How, do, how would you pastorally encourage uh, people in your congregation or, or Christians across Canada and the United States how would you pastorally encourage them to respond to a situation like that? Mm, yeah, it's such a good question. And 
just a reminder that many people who ask this question are asking it, I don't think you are, Paul, but many do ask it with the unstated assumption that there's really two options. Rather than a continuum of options, there's two categories. We think in terms of categories rather than continuum. And the two categories are do something, meaning use violence, or do nothing and be completely passive. So which is it? And rather there's a continuum of creative responses that often we don't even take time to think about because we've told ourselves there's really only two options. Do I enlist and fight as a soldier or do I not? Do I do something or do I do nothing? Uh, rather, we would say it's not time to be passive as in doing nothing, but to be a pacifist comes from the same root word meaning to pacify, to actively work for peace. So we would say that there are there is a wide range of options for a genuine Jesus-following Christian to do other than say, well, I'll pick up a gun and join the army and enlist as a combatant. There's a wide range of options that maybe we don't even begin to think about because we've talked ourselves out of that kind of creative thinking in the bifurcation of just two, two realities. Um, and so I, you've seen perhaps Hacksaw Ridge. The I haven't, but I've heard you. I've heard you rave about it. Why is that? Why? Why do? Why do you so appreciate that film? Why would you maybe uh, consider that as a possible model of to encourage? Hacksaw Ridge, which really run, don't walk. To I'm familiar with the story. Yeah, good. Yeah, uh, Desmond Doss is a fascinating case study of someone who is wrestling with the continuum of. How can I follow my conscience? And he comes to the conclusion. Again, all pacifists might not agree on what the result is, but a but an Anabaptist is someone who says this is this is a topic worth wrestling through. Even if on the other side of that wrestle we come to slightly different conclusions, that's fine. To be an Anabaptist is to say, I'm not just going to default to a just war position. I think it's worth wrestling through. What are the creative options along that continuum? And Desmond Doss was someone in World War II uh, at the time as an American who said, I don't believe in killing. I believe in following the way of Jesus. At the same time, I believe that this is a war that is fighting for something good, and I want to figure out how to support it while at the same time being nonviolent. So he wasn't just a conscientious objector who said, I will not go, I will not sign up for the army. Uh, he He's an example of someone wrestled it through and said, I'll make the choice of being what he calls a conscientious cooperator. I will sign up as a medic and I will treat anyone who is injured, including the enemy, but I will be there as an active helping presence as a medic, but I will refuse to carry a firearm of any sort throughout World War II, which is one step even further than your average medic. And, um, and he had to fight for that right and won the right to be that person, ended up being a, a war hero. I love war movies and I love uh, the way of peace. So this is like my <laughs> ultimate favorite movie. And it's not to say, let's hold up Desmond Doss and say we all have to follow his path, but it's to say, here's an illustration of what someone who doesn't think in terms of categories, but thinks in terms of the continuum of how can I creatively respond case by case. Here's how one person wrestled it through. So I find it very inspiring then for us who take the peace teachings of Jesus very seriously. I'm glad you bring up that film and to even think about films and other uh, aesthetic expressions in our culture, because you're right, as especially as Americans, uh, and we are the largest exporter of uh, culture to the rest of the world, you're right that we are frequently um, uh, frequently, dem frequently demonstrated, probably in most films, probably in most films that many men would go and see. You see that the option to bring about a resolution, bring about a just resolution, is usually a violent means. Uh, it's usually what everything from superhero movies to war movies, right? 
I think even growing up, we watched uh, almost every uh, Memorial Day weekend in our in our house. Growing up, we would watch this uh, World War One movie about Sergeant Alvin York, and maybe you're familiar with his story. He was a pacifist. He had these convictions, and someone talked him into fighting, and then he went out and killed a bunch of Germans, and that was the moral of the story. You know, <laughs> so it's interesting to see how these things unconsciously, maybe even subconsciously, shape our imagination where we can't think of other options other than uh, waging war or passivism. And we usually interpret passivism as inactivity. Uh, And that, by the way, is the underlying assumptional uh, challenge behind people who ask the question. So are you saying a man breaks into your house and is going to rape your wife and kill your children that you're just going to do nothing? And it's that same. Just be aware of the assumptions behind the question, the categorization of either protect your family through violence or do nothing and support the enemy's violence. And there's a whole litany of creative, potential creative responses that are just uh, in the form the question takes, they're wiped off the board. And so I think it's helpful for all of us to be aware of how our own minds are cheating us on some of the creative, godlike image of God-bearing creative creative uh, processing that we're failing to bring to this topic because of some of our assumptions. Mm. I, my own sister-in-law, she, she works uh, for an NGO, uh, an NGO called Preemptive Love. Mm. And uh, seeing her work in places along with the rest of that wonderful organization in places like Syria and Iraq, it reminds me in this conversation, I think of I believe it was Glenn Stassen, the, the Christian ethicist, who who coined the term, um, you know, radical peacemaking. Or he he talked about essentially like, what if we had an imagination? And I could be wrong. I'm, I'm just bringing this off the cuff. I, I could. It might not be Glenn Stassen. He talked about this idea of essentially sending out peacemaking armies in the world, right? And and an ounce of prevention is worth worth a pound of cure. I think one of the problems Americans have. I think even of something like a, such a horrific event like September 11th, and we think instantly, obviously the response would seem to be we need to go out and, and kill those bad guys, but with very little reflection on the possible causations that led to an event like that, what, what was happening in the world. And I, I even encourage, uh, I like to encourage people to consider, and I, I must confess, playing my cards, I, I am not necessarily a pacifist. I would I would say I, 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 on the spectrum, I lean towards nonviolence, but I, I might confess, <clears throat> excuse me, that there, I could see some limited incidences in which just war could be, um, it, it could be the, uh, the, the less of worse results. But I don't want to unpack that necessarily right now. But I will say this: hearing your confession, my brother. <laughs> Um, but I, I, I would say, I would say this, and uh, it's a question I, I frequently pose to people: is I, I say, you know, and especially in America, I, what would happen? Even you know, we can have arguments between the just war camp and the pacifist camp, but when was the last time Americans participated in what would even be a classical just war? Uh, and so maybe even the Anabaptist prophetic voice on this issue could at least even maybe get people to consider our dependence on aggression uh, and not even defense, but that this is so deeply ingrained into our psyche that we see it in movies all the time. It's the only way we can resolve things is by blowing 
something up or killing somebody or nuking someone um, that perhaps at least if today you even leave not completely convinced, that's good. You should process this some more. I would hope that even just this, the convictions Bruxy has would cause you to reflect as it has caused me, caused me to reflect in my own journey on my own ways of viewing violence. And perhaps it's not in keeping with the, the, the teaching uh, of Jesus. I do know, uh, Bruxy, if we do have time for one more question here, I, I, I do have, um, I know some people, you know, we could spend a lot of time talking about issues of nonviolence. I, I do know that maybe perhaps people that come from particular traditions that emphasize infant baptism, uh, that the Anabaptist position of believer's baptism can be maybe a stumbling block to them, or they they wrestle with that. And I don't want to take time to unpack the the biblical defenses for believers baptism versus infant baptism that's like one google search away from people and they can find plenty of you know proof texting for any side i am interested a little bit more in the theological implications of each especially if someone would process this is one of the implications of believers baptism that that individuals must you know cognitively understand a, a certain minimal threshold of truths about God and about Jesus and that they they have to actively choose to repent, to change the way they think in order to align themselves with God, to be saved, and that this baptism is simply like a symbolic demonstration of their... I think some people have concerns. There's, there's I'm sure you've heard accusations of Pelagianism, right? That what you're saying is that uh, effectively, if somebody has to get to some sort of age of consent or age of accountability and they make this profession of faith, are we really saying the means of grace is their own choosing uh, to follow Jesus? Yeah, I appreciate that. And certainly infant baptism is something that the early reformers were able to to embrace well coming from a reformed theological perspective. Having said that, a good many reformed brothers and sisters have embraced believers' baptism, so I wouldn't want to tie infant baptism to Mm. reformed Calvinist theology and say that uh, believers' baptism is something that uh, departs from Calvinist thinking, because I know— I also think of Catholics and, you know, uh, Eastern Orthodox um, people in those traditions, yeah. Yeah, so I don't I don't know that there's um, necessarily a too very close uh, uh, correlation between Calvinism and infant baptism as it's expressed today, anyway. Um, and certainly, some of my more very committed Reformed brothers and sisters believe in believers' baptism. They would just want to say they they're convinced that even though God elects and He is the one who chooses, He also chooses for that to be uh, expressed. Uh, the the completion of that salvation of God electing and regenerating and the response of faith uh, being expressed through baptism at that point, and then those of us who are non-Calvinist would say uh, we we agree with the conclusion. We get there through a different route, but uh, the conclusion for us is less of a theological journey as much as it is to just scripturally say we think we see if we're interpreting scripture correctly we see baptism used as the expression of a person's faith. Whether you got to that faith through a traditionally Calvinist route or Arminian route, uh, you got to that point of faith, and baptism should be an expression of that. So we we tell people at the meeting house, uh, if you were baptized as a child, uh, thank God for the faith of your parents. That's beautiful. Um, 
And that's really what that ceremony was. It was a demonstration of their faith and their prayers and their belief and their commitment to you and to raising you well. And you can thank your parents for that while at the same time coming to the conclusion that that is not what the New Testament is talking about when it talks about baptism. And now I need to step up and express my own faith through my own baptism. One of the questions, though, that might come up about that sort of more synergistic process of entering into union with God is questions about, is there is there a certain threshold of minimal convictions or beliefs that someone would have to have in order to be saved by God and in order to enter into union with them? Is an implication of believer's baptism, does it perhaps in, in the liturgical practice of it, does it shape people's imaginations to think that we have to have a certain minimum threshold of right doctrine in order to uh, be saved by God? Uh, or is that a, a misunderstanding? How would you maybe correct people's misunderstandings if they think that's an implication of, of saying, well, believer's baptism is the way to go. You need to repent, choose to follow Jesus, be baptized. Sure. Well, again, in defense of my more Reformed brothers and sisters, they would say that um, that there's no synergism involved, that there is an ordo salutis, there is an order of salvation, and and even if regeneration proceeds faith, uh, baptism is an appropriate response of that process coming to completion, resulting in faith, therefore be baptized. And they would say no synergism, but still believe very strongly in believer's baptism. Um, so this is my putting on my old Baptist pastor's hat, which I was for a number of years, and, and would argue such. Um, so either way, we would argue for believer's baptism as an expression of faith whether you've got there through the order salutis of this uh, this order or that order, uh, depending on your theological background, it concludes with faith. Therefore, baptism is the right expression of that. Um, so, and then having said that, uh, it's true that Anabaptists in general, and it's worth, if you want to understand Anabaptists better, it's worth noting that Anabaptists have not been particularly theologically robust and uh, in, in, in entered into some of those debates. Uh, to some extent by choice and to some extent by history, the earliest Anabaptists, of course, were persecuted, and that was our leaders. When you poked your head up as a thought leader who was outspoken, uh, you were uh, an easier target and were likely going to die. So, Yeah, good luck. Good luck writing a systematic theology if you're drowning. Right, right. So almost our first generation, then second generation, and third generation of Anabaptist leaders would all be killed. And also, we never had our own countries of security and safety because we didn't use violence. So we didn't have our version of a Germany for Lutheranism uh, that where we could set up our seminaries, our Anabaptist schools. We were we met for the first number of generations on the run, in the forest, in caves, in homes, in cellars, in barns. And so there was no safety or security to establish places of learning. And at the same time, our theology worked well with that because we were we said, a discipleship to Christ is the goal of uh, of the church. That Jesus calls us to make disciples, teaching them to obey, to actually live out everything I have commanded you. Jesus says, and so while it might be interesting to have some of these more academic discussions about things, the bottom line for Anabaptists is: Are we helping each other each day follow Jesus better? When I wake up in the morning, am I living more like Jesus today? And that's very key to Anabaptist theology. Um, and so so today, now that Anabaptists are not being persecuted, we can set up our own seminaries and schools of thought and publishing houses, et cetera. 
we do that, we have a lot of catching up to do with our Reformed brothers and sisters, that's for sure. And as we do that, we're also still cautious and say, well, hold on, we do want to continue to catch up and learn our systematic theology and other things. But while we do that, let's not forget our roots. That's Maybe that persecution brought about the best version of ourselves that said, I'm not going to spend my day entering into many of these theological discussions. I'm going to spend my day saying, how can I follow Jesus better today and help other people become disciples of Jesus? I see that being a point of harmony, actually, with the charismatic and Pentecostal traditions uh, that reminds me a lot of this sort of attitude. And I had joked about things, comments made like seminaries or cemeteries, but we'd often hear about how the disciples were uneducated people and that the Greek of the New Testament was the the Greek of the, the common person. And what was really important was whether or not we were living as Christ in the world. Well, you know, in the charismatic tradition, there's a special emphasis on the the demonstrations of the kingdom in Christ in the world. And the Anabaptists, uh, I'm not saying that isn't a part of it. They're, are there charismatic Pentecostal Anabaptists? Yes, yes. So yeah. Anabaptists, uh, I think the original Anabaptists actually had a real charismatic uh, tinge. They they were largely uneducated. They saw that it was their educated Protestant leaders who were who were slaughtering them. So they they also thought God's got to be able to speak to us in uh, in ways other than just rich theological education. If we have our Bibles open and we gather around them together, we talked about a Jesus-centered hermeneutic. They also believed in the community hermeneutic, meaning that the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who inspired Scripture, is living in me. So the author of the book I'm reading actually dwells inside me. He's going to help me understand scripture. And I say community hermeneutic because they believed I by myself relating to scripture may uh, be headed in the right direction. But if that same spirit who, who inspires scripture lives in me personally also lives in my neighbor and my brother and my sister, then we get a few of us gathered around scripture together. We're amplifying the voice of the spirit. We're turning up the volume on what the author of scripture is saying right now in our presence. And so we should Primarily study scripture not as single individuals, which is already good, but as a community saying, Holy Spirit who inspired scripture, how are you speaking to us today? How are we to live this out now? That sounds so similar to my charismatic Pentecostal tradition, too, in many ways, to how the scriptures were treated. And there's some there's some dark underbelly to that from time to time, we, but we never considered anything like the historical, historical grammatical context. It was oftentimes you'd sit in a Bible study. And we'd even do this, <laughs> we would do this actual practice. I mean, I would even lead people through this when I was much younger. You would just open up a passage of scripture and we would instruct the room, just keep reading until you feel something jump off the page and share what you think it means. Yeah. You know, uh, that would that would make my seminary professor so angry <laughs> if I were to employ that today. But I, It's true. I guess we'll never know what the early Anabaptists <laughs> anyway is, how much yeah. of it is choice and how much of it is context. That's right. all we had. Uh, we, right. we couldn't have our own seminaries because of the persecution. So that's all we had. So, I mean, praise God that the Holy Spirit can speak you know, to the ignorant and the uneducated as they gather around scripture and invite them to speak, because that's all we had, like the early church. Having said that, now that we have the opportunity to learn, as I said, we, we, we are doing that interesting dance right now, this generation of Anabaptists saying, we want to learn. We don't want to be afraid of education. At the same time, we know that education enough, just like you said, this charismatic approach has a, a dark underbelly. The, the world of academia, we've learned by experience, has a dark underbelly. It can lead to absolute and extreme violence and complete blindness to what they're studying, even though they knew so much more than the Anabaptists and they missed uh, some of the basic principles of the, of the ethics of Jesus. So, um, so we have that kind of proceed with caution approach to education. And, uh, and I'm glad we're proceeding at least with caution because I love... 
I, I love rich theological debate and discussion, so I'm glad that that uh, that's not something I have to give up as an Anabaptist. Mm, that's great. Well, I know we've spent a lot of our time in that world of theology and unpacking ideas, but uh, finally, as we wrap up here, Bruxy, I'd like to just to turn to more on the the spiritual and personal formation side because I hope I hope people can pick up even if this is the only time they've heard you speak or. Uh, or, or have encountered your ideas before, that you have one of the most kind, charitable, and thoughtful dispositions towards others that I have seen in people among people in prominent places of, of ministry. Hmm. How have you developed that? And, and, and what sorts of encouragements would you give to others who are listening who, who do want to have a different mode of being in the world than what we may see as normal and things so common as like social media, cable news, and even sadly in the White House and Capitol Hill, Hill here in the United States. How, how have you, uh, what's, what sorts of things have fostered this different mode of being that I think people can pick up on? Uh, how would you encourage them to develop that in the world? Mm. Oh, well, that's kind of you to say, Paul. I, I think uh, two things come to mind. Um, the first is at some point in my ministry, it occurred to me that the fruit of the Spirit is not just for the layman, uh, but that it should be a part of my life, and not just my life as a child of God, but my life as a pastor and my life as a preacher. So that I realize that things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, etc., and gentleness, I mean, these beautiful aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, are things that God has told me the Holy Spirit wants to do in me. He hasn't left it a mystery. He hasn't said, I want to make you Christ-like, but we're all wondering, hmm, what does Christ-like really look like? It's not a mystery what the Holy Spirit wants to do in each one of us. He's told us. So because he's told us, that gives us the opportunity to either work with or against the flow of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I can read through this fruit of the Spirit and the qualities of love in Galatians chapter 13, etc., and and say, ah, this is what the Holy Spirit is doing in me right now. I'm either working with or against this flow. And having said that, I realized that this includes my preaching on a Sunday. This includes how I engage in debates. This includes how I talk about other Christians on Twitter. This includes all of life, or as I, I realized for a while, I had segregated it. Uh, there was the child of God, Bruxy, who should have the fruit of the Spirit. Then there's Pastor Bruxy, who should preach with a furious and righteous wrath and get his point across. And I I realized that, no, we've created a church subculture that gives some forms of preaching even a free pass on the fruit of the Spirit. And I felt very convicted and realized that when I teach, for instance, on a Sunday mornings, and hopefully as a pastor, I do more than just that. But when I do that, that's an opportunity for discipleship. And I am discipling in my tone, in my posture, not only in the truth from Scripture I teach, but how I talk about other Christians who disagree with his interpretation of Scripture. I'm modeling the fruit of the Spirit. I'm discipling. And so that was a turning point for me a number of years ago where I realized that qualities like gentleness and joy should not just be Bruxy qualities as a human being or as a child of God. They should be Bruxy qualities as a pastor and as a teacher, as a preacher on Sundays. That was a bit of a game changer for me. Um, and, I, and part of that is when I realized that anger is not on the list as a fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> and that some of us, and maybe this is true in, in your charismatic uh, background, Paul, have grown up with a kind of what we would call righteous indignation or righteous right. wrath. It's like if you put the qualifier righteous in front of anything, yeah. it becomes a good Right, so good pulpit uh, pounding, right? Yes, that's right. So there's this righteous anger, righteous wrath, and uh, and what I learned as I studied scripture more is that it's just 
we're making that up. There's this one term Paul uses once, righteous indignation. It's not the word for wrath. It's a, it's a word for pain. You know, to be pain, to, to allow your care for what's pure and what's right actually hurt you when you see the sin of this world and the damage that's being done to people and that we're doing to ourselves. That should create a kind of righteous indignation or a pain or a twistedness inside. Uh, but the word for wrath and anger is never something that's encouraged in us. There's not a righteous wrath. God's wrath is righteous. But he doesn't trust us with that dynamite. We represent the love of Christ, not the judgment or the wrath or the retribution of God. That's not our calling as the church. We talked about that in Romans 12. It's clear. And so I realized that I can't hide under the banner of, of this kind of latent anger that wants to well up inside me and just call that holiness. Mm. You know, we hear pastor model that and we say, well, he's just got a zeal or a passion for holiness and for righteousness. And actually, what we need to say is, no, actually, that's just sin. <laughs> that's, that's some processing their latent anger issues publicly and discipling people in the way of wrath which is oh, sin wow. for us the only positive use of wrath in a human context in the entire scripture is a uh, new testament is uh, ephesians 4 where it says in your anger do not sin but it doesn't stop there it goes on to teach us how to be angry and not sin uh, don't let the sun go down on your anger or else you're giving the devil a foothold, he says. So in other words, here's a way you can be angry and not sin. Get rid of it. As mm. soon as possible, get rid of it. And it won't be called sin. Maybe it's a temptation at that point. But it's not sin as long as you get rid of it. If you hold on to it, well, he says, then you're opening up the door to Satan. And then just a few verses later, Paul gives another one of his vice lists, which is the list of things that Christians ought not find among themselves. And right on that list, once again, as it is on other lists, is anger or wrath. You should not find this among you. This is sin. If it comes up, all right, we'll call it temptation, but just get rid of it right away so that you don't give room to the devil. And then we create a church culture that says, embrace it, give room to it, open up the door to it. We'll just call it righteous wrath, and our pastors will model it every Sunday morning. And uh, I just I just needed to repent of all of that and say, no, I'm wrong. What are the fruit of the Spirit? Let your gentleness be evident to all. This is what the Holy Spirit wants to do in me. So if I'm going to be a good disciple of Jesus and disciple others, I need to follow in this way. Mm. Even last night, I had saw something on social media that made me upset, and I was going to Kind of repost it and throw in some of my own outrage. And then I was thinking about the the upcoming discussion with you. And I looked down at my WWBD bracelet. I said, what would Bruxy do? And I, <laughs> and I didn't post it. <laughs> I didn't post it. And I realized I don't need to contribute to any more of the outrage culture. And that that's not going to bear the, the fruits of the Spirit in my life. Well, yeah, it's interesting because we do live in a call-out culture, don't we? Call-out yeah. culture. And there's this real, like, almost endorphin rush when we either do the calling out or we see someone else get called out and we pile on and we just have this sense of superiority. It's like a, an entire culture of fragile social media egos who are just <laughs> waiting to see someone get taken down so we can feel better about ourselves. And, and it's not only enough for us to say, I won't participate in call out culture, but to say, what does it mean to participate in call in culture? and say, I'm going to reach out to my enemies, and I'm going to try and build bridges as friends. I am going to try and understand why they believe what they believe and invite them to understand me better and begin to build these bridges. And so I think it would be wonderful for this generation of Christians to not only reject the call-out culture, but to actively practice a call-in culture. Wow, that's a good word. That's a good word. Bruxy, if there were people listening uh, today that perhaps wanted to find out more about some of the work that you're doing, maybe some of the things that you have written 
or maybe some of the projects you're currently involved in, what could you tell them uh, about ways to get connected? And I'll make sure I include all these things in the description to this podcast. Okay, thank you, man. I'll give you three locations online you could go to. One is my own personal uh, page, blog post, and that's my name, bruxy.com, bruxy.com. Like Bono or The Edge or Prince, right? <laughs> You've got a weird name like this. You might as well leverage it. So you're right. Bruxy.com. The next is our church and all of our teachings posted there at themeetinghouse.com, themeetinghouse.com. And then the third is jesuscollective.com. Uh, no the in front of it, just jesuscollective.com. And this is actually a new endeavor that we are in, we want a birth of uh, like-minded people who've been influenced by this Jesus-centric way of approaching scripture and approaching life and ethics. Uh, we get emails regularly and have for a decade from pastors, church leaders, and parishioners just saying, I'm I'm thinking through some new stuff. I've discovered uh, this Jesus-centered way of thinking, but I don't know where to go to have not only fellowship, but kind of um, be challenged in my thinking and just to have some, create some good brotherly, sisterly friendships. And so uh, we're uh, putting together this thing called Jesus Collective, a network of like-minded pastors, parishioners, people to uh, to come together online and then hopefully in person as well and build mentoring relationships. 2019 is just our developmental year and it's going to be released, uh, opened officially in 2020. But in the meantime, people can get basic information at jesuscollective.com. So those are the three places people can go. Well, thanks, Bruxy. I hope all, all of you would take the time to check some of those things out. You know, putting my own cards on the table, I confess I am not, I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself an Anabaptist, but I have learned so much and have been uh, so convicted in many areas of deficiency in my theology and my practice by the Anabaptist tradition that even if you are you're quite comfortable in your own church context, that's great. I still think uh, we we always can benefit from seeing a different perspective from a brother or sister in Christ. We have to confess our own limitations. We have to confess sometimes even our own sinful predispositions to have our own biases confirmed. And so one way that we practice cognitive flexibility is just by exposing ourselves to different ideas. And Bruxy's a great guy to do that because he's not going to yell at you about your stupid ideas. <laughs> so thank you, Bruxy. I appreciate, appreciate you taking the time and I uh, hope we can do this again sometime. Thank you. And although you might not identify as Anabaptist, I think you're pretty Anabaptist. <laughs> so right. I really I'll appreciate, take it. appreciate I'll take it, it. Thank you for this time. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, I so thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with Bruxy. If you have questions, objections, different ways of seeing things, maybe uh, points of agreement, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me multiple ways. You could start by finding me on Twitter. That's one way. Uh, fairly active there. You could also leave a comment in the link that I usually use. I usually use Podbean because that kind of goes across all platforms. People can use that on their computer to listen or on their Android device. So those are a few ways to get a hold of me. I also want to encourage you, if this is a program that's helpful for you uh, and it, you, you find it to be a, a part of your life that's adding some sort of value, there's a few ways you can support it. The first of which is by just taking the time to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That's the primary place people are listening and discovering podcasts. 
Uh, I would love to get whatever stars you think this thing deserves or to leave some sort of comments so that people that are searching for similar material might be able to find this and go, hey, I'm going to check this out. I'd also say that another way that you can support this podcast is just by sharing the episodes that you think might be helpful with another person. I don't do like advertising or anything like that, paid advertisement. So the only way new people are going to come and discover this is if you share it with them. Finally, I also want to encourage you to consider becoming part of our Patreon community. And uh, by doing so, you are supporting this financially. You are There's some cool perks that you might be interested in as you take a look at that on Patreon. I'll provide that link in the description. And I want to thank some of this month's Patreon supporters that made this episode possible. I want to thank Charles. I want to thank uh, Paul. I want to thank... Micah, and I want to thank uh, Elizabeth, some of the new uh, contributors on Patreon that have become part of the Patreon community. Thank you. Make sure you guys uh, take a look at that link and consider if that's something you want to become involved in and support the continued creation of this podcast. And in the future, I, I do hope to kind of expand some of the video stuff we're doing. I've done in the past and make some improvements there because I think that's also a valuable, a valuable medium of expression for these ideas. So thanks, guys. And until next time, uh, take care. Reach out to me. Uh, throw out whatever questions, observations, or ideas came into your head as you were listening today. 